You're listening to the Startup Finance Podcast on the Startup Canada Podcast Network, a show entirely focused on helping you to build a financially fit and fundable business. On this show, we connect you with finance aficionados to impart their expertise to help your business grow. The Startup Finance Podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community and voice for Canada's 2.3 million entrepreneurs. Make your way over to startupcan.ca forward slash podcast to subscribe to this Startup Finance Podcast through iTunes and Google Play Music. This podcast is presented in partnership with MasterCard, a technology company in the global payments industry. MasterCard's Global Payments Processing Network connects consumers, financial institutions, merchants, governments in more than 210 countries and territories. MasterCard products and solutions make everyday commerce activities such as shopping, traveling, running a business, and even managing your finances easier, more secure, and more efficient. I am your host, Dr. Sean Wise, Professor of Entrepreneurship at Ryerson University. I bring more than 19 years' experience in seed investing, including five seasons spent supporting CBC's Dragon's Den. I've published dozens of articles for Profit, Inc., and even Canadian Business, as well as several best-selling books on venture capital, entrepreneurship, and pitching ideas. Want to connect with me after this podcast? Join me at 100stepstostartup.com. We're thrilled to have Michael Litt on the Startup Finance Podcast today. Michael is the CEO and co-founder of Vidyard. Thought leader, surfer, and serial entrepreneur, Michael leads the development of one of the most innovative video analytics technologies. Michael's an authority on entrepreneurship and connecting with audiences in the age of customer experience. He is a regular contributor to Fast Company, has been quoted in Forbes, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and even TechCrunch. He's been called upon to speak at TEDx, the Digital Collective, and Y Combinator's Ad Innovation Conference. Michael's been recognized with the Peter Bjord Award for Canada's Next Generation of Executive Leadership, Marketing Magazine's Top 30 Under 30, and Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year. Michael is an engaging and inspiring public speaker with global experience presenting to both large and intimate audiences. In today's podcast, we'll talk to Michael about the numbers behind scaling a tech company. But first, let's welcome to the show, Michael. Hi, Michael. Hey, great to be here. I'm really excited to get to chat with you. But first, I want to hear from you. At the end of this podcast, what would you like our listeners to take away? What learnings do you want our listeners to walk away with? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's a very good question. And when I think about our journey as a startup, uh, I think one of the most important things to consider is that we did not start this organization with really any financial or business background. And we've had to learn Everything I'm going to discuss from unit economics to the process of financing to budgeting, uh, spending, and, and ultimately doing that at scale. So if there's anything to take away at the end of this podcast, it is that you do not need to be an expert uh, in this particular topic to accelerate your business, uh, but it is something that uh, you have to investigate and learn. And hopefully that's why the listeners are tuning in. Absolutely. And I think a lot of the listeners are, are where you are. They're, they're passionate about their business. They're obsessed about serving their clients. But financing was never something they read for fun. Accounting was never something they did as a hobby. And I think that's very common. 
Earlier in the season, we talked to many financial advisors, and they proposed that good financial resources like a dashboard, like your financial quarterly statements, aren't just for tax purposes. They are actually a dashboard that can provide you with insight. You're running quite a large company, doing quite large numbers. What do you see looking back as the role of financial knowledge has played? That's a fantastic question. And if I rewind the clock back to kind of the humble beginnings of this organization, uh, it actually started in the office uh, of a professor of mine at the University of Waterloo uh, in Hagee Hall. And that professor's name was Larry Smith. And Larry Smith uh, famously has taught Econ 101 and Econ 102, uh, which are obviously introductory economics courses, uh, but they're often referred to as economics for engineers. And <laughs> the micro and the macro. Exactly. The, the, the baseline. <laughs> yep. The baseline. And uh, he has an uh, incredible mind for business and for opportunities uh, and for the state of both micro and macro economic, uh, I think, opportunities and challenges. And, and he became a very early advisor to this organization. And so when I, I realized, I said at the very uh, beginning of this, that finance isn't necessarily a key ingredient to being successful, but I think understanding economics ultimately is. And one of the very first things we did, um, once we realized that uh, we had a business that was you know, operating and, and going to be making money and spending money, is really formalize uh, our, our bookkeeping process. Uh, because mm-hmm. the, the, the two things you need for mm-hmm. business survivability are our customers and then ultimately, ultimately revenue. And so we needed a really great way of, of tracking that money. And fortunately, my, uh, my co-founder, Devin, um, had a mind for that sort of task, uh, because going through receipts and all that sort of thing was not necessarily my, uh, my area of strength. Uh, but from there, uh, we basically built a spreadsheet that functioned as a dashboard. And to your earlier point, um, that spreadsheet included all of our basic unit economics, uh, state of finances. And it was something that we looked at on a weekly, monthly, and quarterly basis to better predict the direction of the business, areas where we needed to invest in the business. And as our business got more complex, we ultimately added more rows. And then we had uh, separate sheets designed for separate organizations. Um, and that spreadsheet still exists today, five, six years later. It's called the Ongoing Metric Spreadsheet. And it is what I use on a weekly and monthly basis to make the bigger decisions about where we're spending money and ultimately how we're going to grow this company. Let's drive, let's dive down into that for a second. Because again, I think a lot of young entrepreneurs, they keep everything in a shoebox until the first year when taxes are done. And to me, that's the minimum. That's what you have to do legally, but it's missing out on the opportunity to get insight. For those who haven't scaled their business and grown to the size, can you tell us what you do with those spreadsheets? What are you looking for? What are you regularly checking? What are sort of the key metrics or KPIs or key performance indicators that you're always aware of? Yeah, great, great question. So, uh, our this spreadsheet ultimately the the, the kind of top line numbers are our annual recurring revenue, uh, which we call our run rate. We're a SaaS business; people pay a monthly subscription to access our software. So, all of those subscriptions roll up to a single number. 
uh, on a monthly basis, which we multiply by 12, we call that ARR. That is one of the most integral metrics in our business. We set ARR. And, and ARR, the annual recurring revenue, is like monthly recurring revenue, but in a bigger sense, if you're going to look for the lifetime value, it's usually the ARR multiplied by the churn or how much, how long you're going to keep them. So you're saying that by looking at the annual run rate, how much your customers contribute, you're able to make better strategic decisions. Absolutely. I mean, that's the that's the top line metric that our business's enterprise value is largely going to be based on. So when investors look at this organization, when I'm not raising money, we've done a number of institutional rounds, that ARR number is the very first thing they ask for. And so that number is in, into my brain. I wake up with it. I go to bed with it. I have goals for it. And everything else ultimately falls away from that number. The other number, which is obviously highly, highly important, is our cash balance. We're a venture funding. We are not profitable. We burn cash on a monthly basis. And so understanding where we're at, what our runway is, how our burn rate is matching to that ARR growth is hyper, hyper, hyper important. And it is my responsibility as the CEO of this company to make sure that we're both growing ARR and that we've got enough money in the bank to fund this operation continuously. And so those are the, the two top level things. And as you can imagine from there, pipeline, churn metrics, headcount, um, the number of, of call connects our outbound sales team has, the number of demos that are getting booked, um, the CSAT score on the customers, uh, the NPS score from our customers, our ENPS internally, everything falls underneath the spreadsheet uh, in, in, in terms of the, uh, the heading of the operation they exist under. And then they kind of line up in order of importance based on how we make decisions. What about the customer acquisition cost? I mean, you mentioned institutional investors. When Ryerson features the fund at where I help out at, you know, we're always interested in the MRR, how much are they monthly recurring revenue, and how much does it cost them to onboard? And all that comes to, you know, the idea of product market fit, the idea of problem solution fit, where you are in the process. So do you look at not only the sources of revenue, but the cost to get that revenue? Absolutely. So customer acquisition cost is a major metric in that sheet. Um, as is average deal size, as is the amount of time required to close a deal, as is customer lifetime value, uh, which you mentioned earlier in the discussion. Uh, and as you know, customer acquisition costs um, has multiple, many contributing factors to it. What we try to do as an organization is not cheat ourselves on customer acquisition costs. I know a number of companies will remove certain aspects of spend that could, could technically be considered cost of goods sold away from sales and marketing expense, but we believe in fully loading our customer acquisition costs. And so we have targets. Um, however, when we're investing heavily in growth, we know that our customer acquisition cost is going to increase uh, because there's obviously a, a lagging time frame between when you make the investment to when you close the customer. And so we have kind of threshold barriers that we want to keep customer acquisition cost inside of. And that's how we calculate our uh, marketing and sales efficiency with respect to going to market. Ultimately, though, um, this is maybe an interesting tidbit. Uh, Bessemer Venture Partners, one of our investors, actually rolled out um, uh, a new program. And they have uh, what is called the Bessemer Venture Partners Efficiency Score. Uh, that's the it, benchmarking program they offer, correct? 
where they they allow you to see how efficient you are compared to other people they've invested in or in general, if I'm not mistaken? You've got it. Yeah. So they have kind of best in class efficiency scores all the way down. And so you can kind of see where you land. And the expectation from them is growth at all costs is not productive and not something that they're going to pay premiums for. But very highly efficient growth means the organization has a good understanding of its selling motion. They have a good understanding of the product market fit. And they have a large enough market where they can spend very effectively to acquire those customers. And so, again, tons and tons of metrics here. CAC is one of those indicators, but we use the broader efficiency score on a weekly basis to make decisions around where we're investing from a marketing and sales perspective. Well, I want to talk about Bessemer and I want to talk about the financing journey. For those of you listening, Bessemer Venture Partners is in everyone's top 10 list of best VCs in the world. So we'll have to get into that. But but you talked about scaling. And when I look on your website and I look at your leadership team, you've obviously scaled. And there's a whole belief on the West Coast in the, in the Valley that, you know, you shouldn't scale till product market fit. And the way you do that is when lifetime value divided by the cost of customer acquisition is larger than three. That's all academic. In the yes. real world, do you find that or do you use other metrics to decide when you're going to expand, when you're going to go into new markets? It's a great question. I think product market fit uh, is a construct of the scientist or the mathematician or the finance leader that's trying to build a business. And when you look at a business on a spreadsheet, it's very easy to make those types of assumptions and statements because really great high growth companies probably replicate the metrics that you just indicated. However, when you're in the company, you might have multiple products. You might have one product that has a more efficient uh, ability to scale and therefore uh, more likelihood or, or higher indicators of product market fit than another product. But you might recognize that that product has a cap in terms of the size of the market. And you're probably familiar with this concept of crossing the chasm, book by Jeffrey Moore. That, yes, that, that chasm exists. And there is a big difference between the early adopter customer, aka the person that's willing to uh, test and invest with new technologies, and the early majority. And that is the customer that is looking to protect their job and make the best decision based on you know, a mass volume of customer reviews by the fact that other customers view the product and basically making sure that risk is mitigated in the purchase decision. And the thing about um, really efficient costs of customer acquisition and, and efficiency scores is that they don't take into account the work required to create a category. When you're coming into a market where there might not be a ton of competitors and you're selling something new that doesn't exist to solve a problem that companies might not know they have, Product market fit is a moving target. And I would argue that some of the biggest businesses in the world, and, and Phil, Phil Fernandez, the CEO of Marketo, before departing, uh, that business at over $200 million in ARR was famous for saying that Marketo had yet to truly fit product market fit. And the reason for that is the business would have been worth or running at a, a billion dollar plus in annual recording revenue if they had um, actually found product market fit on the basis of the size of that of that market. So I would say, you know, when we, when we think about taking money from investors and we think about engaging advisors and board members, we're very careful to pick people that have operational experience, have seen a company beyond 200 people, have seen a company beyond hundred million dollars of ARR and been inside of it 
operating with the people and in the market because it's very easy to look at a company as a spreadsheet and make decisions. But until you've been on the street and you've listened to customers and you've seen what's going on in the market, um, you don't necessarily get that feel. And, and as you know, building a business is very much a combination of both art and science. Absolutely. I don't think it's one or the other. I want to walk back because you have such a wealth of experience that many people would like to replicate. You have multiple rounds of funding. You've got great growth. You've managed to keep it in Canada. Let's just talk financing because this is the Startup Finance Podcast. Walk me through, and you don't have to share anything that's too confidential, but walk me through your financing journey. You know, did it follow the friends and founders and fools? Uh, And then did it go to the angels? And then did you accelerate with a seed fund? before getting Bessemer? Because each of those people have a different risk profile, a different investment thesis. You know, a company that gets Bessemer's money is farther along than perhaps someone who gets money from the Toronto Venture Group or the Toronto Angel Group or the the Seed Fund. What was your financing journey at a high level? That's a great question. So I always say that fundraising uh, is is not going to be the same for everyone. But I think there's certain rules that come into effect based on the stage of your business that I don't believe will change. The seed round, regardless of the size, basically the first round of investment in your company is generally going to be... 100%. The first round of external money. Yes, 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 yes. Just because um, people are going to say, well, I already put my own money in. But well, yes, the first outside money... Well, you know what? The first money in general, outside money, your own money, family, friends, I put this all in the same bucket. The reality is there's probably very little to actually invest in. And a seasoned, experienced Wall Street or Bay Street investor would have a very hard time justifying writing a check into that business because there might not be any meaningful metrics. There might not be customer traction. Really what you're doing at that stage regardless of, of, of you know, what the company is saying it's accomplished, is investing in the team and investing in that team's ability to execute on that idea. And you have to have belief that that team is going to be the one to make that idea successful. So I say that that first round of funding is 100% smoke and mirrors. No matter how good your metrics look, et cetera, there's not really hardcore diligence and performance metrics, and the math just isn't going to be large enough to, to really get into the details. So it's, I think that's why, I think that's why it's often done by friends and family because they have a track record with you and all they can do is based on your tenacity and the fact that you, you know, kept going in engineering school when you were troubled, they know about. So it makes them more confident that you'll have a high enough adversity quotient to overcome. So the seed round is smoke and mirrors and, uh, and based on the team, take me from there. Yeah. So our seed round on that basis was we had a video production company called Redwoods Media that was funding the development of Vidyard. And we knew that there was an opportunity to build uh, the Vidyard product based on those customers' needs. And so we had customer need match with a team that understood the customer needs. So we disseminated some of that risk. <clears throat> then we were accepted into the Y Combinator program. And the Y Combinator program also disseminates that risk because they're considered to be an investor, an investment program. And great companies have come from that program. And so now all of a sudden you look like a much more attractive business. The seed round by, you know, no stretch of the imagination is the most difficult round to raise because it isn't really based on real numbers or real math. It's based on someone's um, concept of your ability to succeed and execute. The series A, by contrast, you've got some traction. You've got some numbers. There's going to be some diligence. 
And so in my mind, the Series A is 20% how your company is performing and 80% smoke and mirrors. Now, a lot of businesses don't make it to the Series A stage because they don't get the performance. They don't get to customers. They don't find that traction. But that smoke and mirrors element is still incredibly, incredibly crucial at that stage because you might not be making a ton of revenue and there might not be really scalable growth economics in place because your seed round might have only been $500,000. You're not spending enough money to justify a $5 million investment. So there's still risk in that investment. And that is why there is that 80% kind of smoke and mirrors tailing figure. Each time you raise this kind of component around smoke and mirrors is how you boost your valuation, right? People are going to have some logic based on your run rate, your burn rate, your customer acquisition efficiency, et cetera, that's going to justify some valuation. But making that round competitive, talking about big opportunities down the line, that's what I mean by, by smoke and mirrors. And that's how you really get those big valuations. The Series B, by contrast, and this is where Bessemer Ventures invested, uh, and again, we've also done our C, so I'll go all the way to there, <laughs> is, in my opinion, about 80% how your company is performing and 20% smoke and mirrors. So much more diligence. You spent a good chunk of that Series A money. You understand who you are. You understand what your market is. Your market is either adopting your technology at a fast rate and you're succeeding in delivering it to them or you're not. And that 20% smoke and mirrors piece, again, is how you drive those valuations up. And finally, the Series C uh, is 100% your performance. And then I want to add that there's this 20% piece of smoke and mirrors on top of that. And your Series C is Can you just gonna- clarify? Can you clarify? Because I don't want people to think. And I, I, no, no. I, I'm not clarifying the math. I'm clarifying what you mean by smoke and mirrors. So I don't want people to think, because I know it's not true, Michael, that you're talking about deceiving or conning. I think what you're talking about is the part of your proposal that is future-oriented, that talks about the potential, as opposed to the part which focuses on the traction to date. Am yes, I correct? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yes. Um, it's the magic. It's the essence of what you are going to do with that money and how you are going to make those investors proud and you're going to make them successful by investing in your business. And I add that extra 20% at the Series C just to connotate that when you make a round competitive, when a bunch of investors can come into the round together, there's a fear of missing out. And investors exist to make investments. And if they miss, FOMO. Yeah, FOMO is a huge thing, right? VCs are a lot like buffalo. If one buffalo or falls sheep. off the cliff, they all fall off the cliff as well, right? And, and that competitiveness in deals is really what drives these companies to great valuations. Now, of course, the performance of your business at the A, B, and C stage is what's going to get those investors interested in the first place. But that smoke and mirrors component, that, that future vision is really what's going to get them excited and it's going to get them frothy. And as soon as they find out that someone else is potentially interested in your deal as well, they start to, they start to topple. And that's when you start to get term sheets, you start to run a competitive process. And we've, we've run this type of, of model for, for raising money in every single round. And to date, we have never had to make a formal investor pitch deck. Wow. 
So people in the audience are, are listening and they're, they're taking notes, no doubt, and they're trying to figure out how to apply it to them. I like to tell our portfolio of companies that, you know, a series A round from a Canadian VC that's going to be, you know, two to $5 million, they're going to be focused on, you know, what is your lifetime value? What is your cost of client acquisition? Have you found low enough cost channels? What are you going to do with our funds? You seem to have put that a little farther down the road on maybe B or C. Do you think that's because you've gone south of the border for money or, or what advice do you give to them that would answer this question? I shouldn't go for external financing until dot, dot, dot. Yeah. So that's a great question. And what I always tell early stage founders is that you have to imagine yourself investing in your company. And so you have to abstract everything you know about yourself, everything you know about your business And you have to take a beginner's mind and look at it objectively from the state of the investor. I hear so many early stage companies who say, I've got a great idea. All I need is a million and a half dollars and a technical team. So in that case, what you're asking- So tell our listeners why that's not going to get a lot of traction. Right. In essence, what you're asking for is someone to invest in you and your idea. You are the only person on your team. You have no one to execute on that for you. So the risk of you finding that person, even with money, is really, really high. So the risk of you being successful at getting to the next stage of growth, the financing of whatever it is, is really, really, really high. And at every single stage, investors are ultimately looking to de-risk those decisions. So now if you have a technical co-founder, if you've got an MVP in market, if you've got people using it that would be willing to give feedback, if you've got a great roadmap and you've got some pipeline of both people to join you as well as customers or users to start utilizing your product, and you have a clear way of articulating how you're going to spend money to acquire those, now we're getting somewhere. Next, layer on uh, social capital, right? Layer on someone who knows those investors willing to vouch for you. Layer on admission into a globally renowned organization like Y Combinator that vets you as part of that process. Uh, The Velocity program at UW, uh, Rev, BMZ, there's so many of these things around that you can get engaged with, which will help distinguish you from the businesses that might just be an idea and an ask for money. At every single stage of that investment process, you have to validate that you are an investable business. And the further you can get along without money, the easier it's going to be to raise. And I see a lot of businesses spend huge cycles raising money when they should just be focused on product and user growth. And if they did that, if they did the hard work, raising money would be much easier when they popped their head up and decided to go and do that. I'm always amazed by that. And I totally agree with you because we know unequivocally that the cost to launch, the cost to get up and running, to have that website, to have that minimum viable product, that MVP are dropping exponentially. So maybe it was 5 million in 97 by the web 2.0 boom in 2007, 2008, maybe it was 500,000. And and maybe today it's a Shopify account and $50 and, and a product you built for in a classroom. But with this, with and the time and but with this drop, this uh, lesser need for capital, uh, this ability to go to market before getting investors, do you think that's better for founders? Because I do, because I think that. 
that way your customers are leading you, not your investors. But you're actually out there doing it. So what's your opinion? Has the drop in cost to launch been a boon or a bane for startup founders? Two, in two, two kind of different perspectives. And one, it's a boon because it's easy to get your product online. It's easy to validate with customers to the point of, of what you just said. It only is going to cost you your time to invest. Yeah, Dropbox, in Dropbox made a video and had exactly. 75,000 early adopters. Nothing speaks to investors like 75,000 early adopters watching a video and signing up. And nothing speaks to me like a video powering that kind of user growth, but that's a, that's an aside. That's a, um, that's a different, we'll talk about that next. <laughs> that's a different topic. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is a boon that is this easy to start a company for founders because it means you can iterate on ideas quickly. You don't need to go too far down the path with too much cost before you realize you went in the wrong direction. On the other hand, it's a bane because there are so many companies that are at that stage that have a few users or um, are building a product that are out there looking for money because the barrier to entry to start a company has dropped. And so it's much harder for early stage investors to identify the good from the bad, which means the bar to getting to early stage funding is rising. Because of the signal to noise, if I have a thousand people who have 10 customers each, it's hard to pick which one of those is a truly global company waiting to emerge. Now, you mentioned earlier that referrals, um, getting someone who is known to the investor to vouch for you play a huge role. And I totally agree. To me, uh, when our portfolio company wants to go for Series A from a company like, like Bessemer or DFJ or Relay, my first move is always to look at the portfolio and to go see some of those CEOs because who better to tell me how to get their money than the people who are already trusted with that money. So when people approach you, what is it that you use as a screen? Because I'm sure you're, you're available, you're a community person, you're involved. But for you to give that vouch, what does it take? Yeah, great question. So I always coach entrepreneurs on this concept of the performance time graph. And uh, if X is the time axis as it usually is, Y is performance measured in some unit. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be revenue. It could be user growth. It could just be you know, objectively, value that you, transfer, yes, that you, okay. you do the things you say you're going to do, whatever. People are always subconsciously plotting points on that graph. The first time they meet you, that point is zero, regardless of where you are. If you were the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company, someone's plotting you at, at zero. That's just their frame of reference for where you start. And every time you engage with that person, you are plotting a point on that graph. And if you okay. tell them what you're going to do okay. and you that. ask for advice and they give you advice and you come back to them a few weeks later and show them what you accomplished on that advice or what you learned or why that advice was bad or why that advice was good, you've now plotted another point on that performance time graph. And this is the concept of, of networking in a nutshell. You're plotting points on these graphs. And what you want to do is point a, next, a nice exponential curve up and to the right on the theoretical performance time graph. Once you get to a certain point on that graph, <clears throat> you have the right and the ability to ask for an intro, to ask for more advice, to ask for money. But if you do this really, really effectively, people are going to offer to help you because they're also plotting their own performance time graphs with their own investors, with their own board members, their own networks. and. Showing them a really cool, exciting new company 
is going to plot them a really nice point on that performance time graph. So this is commonly called the network effect, etc. And this is how we've ultimately raised time and time again without producing a deck. I'm always talking to investors. I'm always educating them on the space. I'm always plotting these points. And at every single round, someone has come out of the woodwork and said, hey, we're really interested in working with you. Are you interested in starting a fundraising process? Would you work with us? Et cetera, et cetera. It leads to a term sheet. Uh, and so I think it's super important for people to understand that. <clears throat> Interesting, because it sounds to me like you're quoting a famous rapper. If you want their money, ask for advice. If you want advice, <laughs> ask for their money. But I can never remember which rapper that was. So I'll, I'll give you the credit for it. Let's talk a little bit about scaling, which is the process by which you know you grow your business. What role has community played in the development of your products and solution? And more importantly, in scaling out your business are you do you mean our our customer community our our uh, our y combinator community the waterloo community what's the i actually think i was actually hoping for all three because i don't have i actually think all three so okay. just the community in which you participate the community of the portfolio which would be y combinator in your case as well as your own users i think people miss out on the asset that is clients and i want to ask you about that and how those can often be more powerful than investors. Oh God. I mean, if you can fund a company based on, re- on, on revenue, do it. Do not raise money. I think this is maybe an aside, but raising money has been glorified by tech media. And, and Dragon's fact, Den and Shark yeah. Tank. And it yes, sounds sexy, yeah. right? But, but Dragon's Den isn't venture capital. Like Survivor, they're not alone on the island. Like Apprentice isn't how you do HR, but yet people want to think it's like the TV show. So keep going. Yes. Hollywood has kind of ruined um, some people's mentality uh, in their approach to, to building a business, uh, which is a bit of a shame, but it's, it's naturally going to happen. Um, I always look at fundraising uh, as go as, as similar as going to the grocery store and buying the ingredients to, to go make a great meal. Nobody celebrates once they've bought the ingredients, they celebrate once they've made the great meal. And so why are fundraisers so celebrated to your point is because it's sexy. It's the transaction of money, often millions of dollars. It's an indicator of past success, not necessarily future success. Yeah, I don't get it. People yeah. want to celebrate it. Like you fueled up your car. Now drive somewhere important. It's great that you got the money, but that doesn't prove that success is imminent. And, and we have raised money and made announcements and rolled new products into those announcements. And of course, the competitive landscape now puts those new announcements on their roadmap and goes and builds those things. And six months down the line, we now have a new competitor in the space. And so I would suggest that raising money is not worth celebrating. Keep your head down build your product. And instead of focusing on fundraising as your success metric, focus on customer milestones, which gets me to the point of community. We have a stakeholder list, which is started off by customers, right? If we don't have customers, we don't exist. The next one on that list is Vidyardians. These are our employees. This is our team. The next one on that list is community. This is the community we exist in. This is Canada. This is YC. These are all the communities that that um, we leverage and we are productive through, and we help, and we assist. And then after that comes shareholders. Now, if your company is public, shareholders come to the top of that list immediately. But as a private organization with the right investors, they will understand that they should come last because alignment to customers, employees, and community is going to drive 
shareholder value. And so I love that you talked about customers because again, in the end of the day, without them, nothing exists. There are no shareholders. There is no community. There is no team. But let's delve deeper into that, right? Because people think that the investors are going to bring such strategic value and such insight, but that insight exists amongst your early adopters. So tell me some practical ways that you have benefited and your business has benefited from leveraging community other than, you know, them paying you. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things we've done constantly is survey our customer base to identify the value drivers uh, involved in what made them choose to purchase and implement Vidyard. And it's interesting. Our organization is generally obsessed with how cool our technology is, how big the deal size is, and what the logo is. And I'm constantly pivoting that mindset to what type of value and outcome are we actually driving for this customer? Because that advises our roadmap, that advises our marketing strategy. It advises where we spend money and is inevitably going to increase our spending efficiency and our growth efficiency and our cost of customer acquisition. And so we have to constantly remind ourselves to be customer obsessed. And being customer obsessed is how you truly solve customer problems. And so my calendar is prioritized based on that stakeholder list. Customers come first. Customer meetings are almost at the top of the pile. They take place before everything else. Then it's internal Vidyard meetings, then it's community, and then it's shareholders. And none of our shareholders are pissed off about that. They would love that I'm spending time on everything else ahead of them because everything else is what's going to create their value. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to have to wrap up, but but I could talk to you forever. I want to really end with a final advice for people who are way back in the uh, queue for growth, who haven't reached your heights. Other than adopting video for marketing and sales, what else can our listeners do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think where we're ending there is is on a really interesting topic, and that is don't start a business to try to become wealthy. Don't start a business to raise money. Don't start a business for visions of your own success. I see that far too often. Start a business because you see or have experienced the pain in the world that you believe needs to be solved, that you are absolutely passionate about, and you can find other people who are in that same bucket because your passion and your pain is going to be somewhat of a, of a similarity with those individuals. And as you start to market and as you start to sell, that passion for solving that pain is what is going to drive people to buy your product and have the urgency to use your technologies. And if you so focus on an unmet market need, focus yes. on a problem you yourself had. So you have insight into it and access to early adopters. Michael, what was yours? Because not everyone in the audience is using your product. What was yeah. the unmet market need you've tackled? And over the process, what is the value you think your solution generates? Just for those who don't know you. Yeah. So we started by making videos for companies and we knew that was an opportunity because on internships that I was lucky enough to get uh, through my time at the University of Waterloo, I worked with video vendors to help companies explain their products from a marketing sales process, but also help support their customers with video. And so we started a video production business because we knew it was a pain. We knew how to solve it. And I've always been super, super passionate about the creation of video. 
that led us to the realization that there was an issue getting those videos on the internet and understanding how those videos were ultimately impacting marketing pipeline, uh, closed business, and support tickets for sales reps. And so we started building technologies to provide that information and solve those problems. And we have just kept going down that path of solving problems to the point where one of our most recent products, it's a free product, it's called Go Video, is a Chrome extension which allows you to uh, easily record a video, uh, send it to a prospect in email, that's either a webcam video or a screen capture to show them how something's done. When they watch it, you get a notification that tells you exactly how much they viewed. And that data can be synced to HubSpot CRM, it can be synced to Salesforce, it can be synced to all your marketing automation suites. So you get a holistic view of how video is impacting your selling process. And the cool thing about it is that it helps ultimately cut through the noise. Because as an early founder, you're going to be doing a bunch of outbound prospecting, you're going to be talking to these people that have the same pain as you, but they get way too many emails. And every single email looks like an automated script. It's never really as genuine as email used to be. And so when they see your smiling face and it's an animated GIF and you wrote their name on a whiteboard and you're waving at them, or you've taken a screen recording of something you're fixing on their website, they have to watch that because the play button is the most compelling call to action on the web. We've been using this product to boost conversion rates and signup rates and meeting booking rates by like eight to 10x over traditional email. So. Yeah, that's the problem we solve, and we've built a ton of technology around it, and uh, we're just in a very exciting phase of our growth. And it's been very exciting to talk with Michael Litt, co-founder and CEO of Vidyard. Thank you so much for sharing your, your time with us today, Michael. Absolutely. It was a great chat, and I'm sure we could uh, we could have gone on for a long time. Thank you for joining us this week on the Startup Finance Podcast, a show dedicated to providing entrepreneurs with advice and experiences on startup finance. Want to access more resources and support to grow your business? Visit startupcan.ca to gain access to support, resources, and events. And be sure while you're there to check out all the other original Startup Canada podcast series on the Startup Canada podcast network.